Well, friends and enemies, welcome to another Fuzz on Film podcast. Delighted to have you with us. My name is Scott Morris. I'm joined today by Drew Davendale. Hello there. And Craig Eastman. The string is just a guide, John. It's just a guide. It's that time of year again where we're just going to start talking about some random films that we saw in December. So, a, a slender pickings to go through this time. <laughs> You're right, <laughs> I think I might have done that one before a long time ago, actually. <laughs> oh no, I'm repeating myself. Who knew? <laughs> There's always so much content you can drag out of yourself. Yes. So I only have so many ideas to recycle, and recycle yes. them I do. <laughs> so we'll kick off today by talking about the latest Netflix sensation, Six Underground. For someone on a film podcast, I spend surprisingly little time reading up on what's in the pipeline, so news of Netflix tapping Michael Bay to this extravagantly be-budgeted action flick past me by until, well, Greg, you mentioned it last week. Um, not that I'd been all that interested in what Mr Bay's normally up to anyway, but I suppose there is some morbid curiosity in seeing what he can cocked with $150 million to burn. Uh, Six Underground very much starts as a means to go on, with a 15-minute car chase with more shootings, stunts, crashes, quips and fast cuts than most action films fit into the entire <laughs> runtime. Uh, for about seven and a half minutes of those minutes, it's exhilarating, and for the rest, it's exhausting. And again, very much as it means to go on. With that out of the way, we get into the very little that passes for character and plot, as largely through flashbacks, we find out how Ryan Reynolds' tech billionaire puts together an anonymous team to dispense the sort of vigilante justice governments are not able to. He's faked his death, alongside other recruits, to put together a family of untraceable ghosts, those others being... Melanie Laron, Marcel Garcia Rulfo, uh, Ben Hardy, Adria Arjona and Corey Hawkins, who are now calling themselves Numbers and not Free Men. This was prompted by Reynolds' character, one witnessing an airstrike on a refugee camp he was visiting on a peantrophic PR junket in his prior life, so he has resolved to take down the man ultimately responsible and put his less objectionable brother in power. Again, through the mediums of crashing cars, shooting people and sinking yachts, it's not a subtle plan. (laughs) (laughs) If the Fast and the Furious taught us nothing but you didn't that very few problems yeah <laughs> very few problems in the world cannot be solved by crashing cars into things yes and i'm sure that was very much the instruction from netflix take fast and furious and deadpool and just mash them together and weld over any joints with explosions and by golly that's what he's delivered um it is as you should expect squarely inside that little subgenre of michael bay action films and well i'm not sure there's all that much point in delving into it much further you probably know by now if that's the sort of thing you like it's all glossily captured explosions and beautiful people and shooting and beautiful people, uh, beautiful locations and car crashes. And you can absolutely see all that money on the screen briefly before it's destroyed. Uh, but the addition here is an almost non-stop stream of quips, primarily, of course, from Reynolds, which alongside the more deliberately ludicrous shots give this a breezy, lightly comedic ultraviolence vibe of a Deadpool. And how well that works will largely depend on your tolerance for Ryan Reynolds. Clearly... Not in the budget was any sort of depth for the characters or plot, all of which are the minimally viable framework to explode things with. And, well, look, you get the point. In the world of big, dumb action movies, it is about as big and certainly as dumb as they come. And if you're in the market for that, then it will scratch that itch. I can't say I cared enough about it one way or the other to give you any stronger opinion on it. Uh, the first 15 minutes done beat the rest of it, perhaps. And I'm instead left with only a vague sense of dissatisfaction that so much money was spent to have so little lasting impact. Um, even when writing these notes, I spent more time reading about 60s cult show The Prisoner and the Sneaker Primps post-1997 career because they're less <laughs> ephemeral. <laughs> uh, Netflix's search for a mass-market film franchise will need to continue, I imagine. Meh, out of ten. I have a bone to pick with both of you. Uh-huh. 
like you, Scott, I uh, I basically don't follow what's coming out. I just wait for stuff to turn up and I'll watch it if it seems appealing. I'd never heard of this film that was mentioned last week. Still didn't actually know anything beyond the name. Saw an advert for it yesterday on YouTube. Um, just a picture, but it mm. had Ryan Reynolds in it, and neither of you bastards warned me. <laughs> I might have watched that not knowing. <laughs> so, yeah, as to your comment for the the Ryan Reynolds tolerance level, Scott, my weary side during your talk yes. may have given away where I, how I feel about that. Ryan Reynolds and Michael Bay and tiresome endless action, yeah, I'll never <laughs> ever watch this. Ever, ever. <laughs> Probably right, Cole. There is really only one interesting stunt in it and it's in the trailer with, with mm. the whole kind of magnetic thing um, and yeah that that's really the only interesting thing I mean other than that like all the stunts are in typical microwave fashion captured quite well it's just that you don't really care about any of it it's just more cars bouncing into other cars and the usual nonsense and it's just very hard to care about any of it yeah uh, I, I found out about it myself about 10 minutes before I posted that message to you guys in the Slack group last week <laughs> and as I said my interest was primarily stoked by imagining what would happen to my soundbar when Michael Bay got <laughs> handed $150 million in Netflix money now I haven't watched it and it's not because I find Ryan Reynolds objectionable. He's he's all right, but I do think he's at a little bit of risk of overexposure at the minute. Um, I finally got around to watching Hobbs and Shaw the other week, which I enjoyed immensely, but I was sort of slightly taken aback to find Ryan Reynolds in it. And I'm now looking out for Ryan, Ryan Reynolds popping out every time I pour myself some cereal in the morning because it's the only place I haven't seen him yet. Um, it's Ryan Reynolds being Ryan Reynolds yes, again. But Ryan Reynolds was particularly poor in Hobbs and Shaw as well. It's so yeah. irritated and the all the so at least half an hour of that film could be cut out and every bit of Ryan Reynolds in it is part of what could be cut but I will I will get round to watching this at some point it's just not troubling the top of my watch list at all I'm going to have to be in a very particular mood to watch this film um, so I'll report back when I have but I kind of feel guilty about the fact that I brought it up and you watched it <laughs> sorry about that it was not Unpleasant. Uh, I've seen far worse films. I think it's it's been well. Its Rotten Tomatoes rating is far harsher than it deserves, given what it is. I... Uh, it, it is a, a, a big budget, crashy action film, and it delivers on that. It just is unremarkable. Despite I'm, how I'm much interested in it as an object because of what I've heard about it. I was listening to um, a, a popular. Um, film podcast from the Ringer Network the other week and they were discussing this film and the consensus around the table was hands up who thinks this was actually made for $150 million um, because it looks like it should probably be, have been substantially more than that everything is shot on location there isn't yeah. five seconds passing without something blowing up um, yeah. and obviously you've got someone like Ryan Reynolds who I'm sure didn't do it for free um, yeah. I mean I'm pretty sure Netflix are just handing people blank checks at this stage so yeah $150 million from what I gather a lot of people view that dubiously as being a cons- conservative uh, figure for something like this but I don't know I'm just intrigued to see what Michael Bay yeah. does it and when someone hands him a blank check and says do what you like yeah it's either quite good CG or 
they have actually got a really cheap yacht and sank it. Because um, most of the things they're crashing and blowing up does, look, for the most part, looks like it's real stuff. Not apart from the more obvious ones uh, where you just couldn't do that in another cabin away without it getting destroyed, these kind yeah. of things. Um, but yeah, I'll, it seems like an awful lot of metal does get exploded in it. Mm. So yeah, um, just on the, the the bill for the cars alone would have been a substantial portion of that 150 million. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll get around to watching it. No, it's uh, something you said there, Craig, which I just can't quite reconcile with any of my own feelings. Just, you were quite interested in Michael Bay, and I, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> don't see that myself. No, <laughs> call it a morbid curiosity, Drew. <laughs> Speaking of cars, about Le Mans '66, Drew, or Ford versus Ferrari, depending on where you are in the world. I think yes, uh, it is an oddly named film. This one, as you say, it's got Le Mans '66, the title it carries in the UK and other countries. Typically, there's a guess where the Le Mans 24-hour race is more well-known than in the US. Makes sense, certainly, though the actual race takes up only a relatively small portion of the film, and I really doubt that that many people know the significance of that particular year. Hmm. Its original title, Ford vs Ferrari, therefore makes a lot more sense as both Ford and Ferrari are universally recognised names. However, it's not really about Ford vs Ferrari as neither Enzo Ferrari nor the company that bears his name play much of a role in it, being responsible for an inciting incident and not a great deal more. And that itself isn't unique, as Ferrari arrogance allegedly also led to Lamborghini, then known for making tractors, beginning to abuse sports cars. <laughs> the plot is reasonably straightforward, being in many ways a paint-by-numbers sporting underdog story, though that Underdog was one of the world's largest car manufacturers with a blank cheque for R&D, so that's the last time I'll use that particular term. (laughs) John Berntal's Lee Iacocca believes that one way to fix Ford's flagging market share is to create a motivating division, and he believes he's found a shortcut. Ferrari are in financial trouble, and they could basically just buy the world's leading motor racing mark for a song and rebadge it. After meeting with Enzo Ferrari... Remo Gironi, Ayacoke and Ford find out that they've been played and that the negotiations with Ford were simply to get a better price from Fiat. This rather rankles with Tracy lets Henry Ford II and, after some guff about his granddaddy, decides that Ford will build his own car to beat Ferrari at Le Mans in one of the world's most prestigious races. To do this, I enlisted Matt Damon's Carol Shelby, our former Le Mans winner and car designer, Christian Bale's crotchety and financially troubled mechanic and racer Ken Miles, and oodles and oodles and oodles and oodles of cash. Mm. Now, they do have a very short time limit for the first attempt, but you know, massive company with rivers of money. They're not exactly a sympathetic hero, especially when Shelby and Miles' biggest battle really isn't with the Italian team, it's with Ford and the Detroit boardroom politics, represented most notably by Josh Lucas's disagreeable Leo Beebe. However, Damon Baylor is engaging as you would expect as they work together to develop and build the fabled GT40, and the film is carried very firmly on their shoulders, even if their characters simply are not as interesting as, let's say, Nicky Lauda and James Hunt and Ron Howard's Rush. In that film, Lauda had much more going on than being a moaning tea-obsessed brummy, and someone with less charisma than Bale would have been forgettable. Most of the rest of the cast are at least decent, but beyond the treacherous Lucas, Bale and Damon take most of the mindshare. Well, except for one actor. While it's not as crucial as it could be, given the relatively small role Ferrari actually played in a film originally titled Ford vs Ferrari, Mangold totally screwed the pooch in casting Enzo Ferrari. The Italian was a legend, 
one of those people whose personality dominated a room without ever having to even speak. So, for some reason, he cast Michael Gambon's knockoff Italian cousin. <laughs> and if you know how little I rate Gambon as an actor, you'll understand how scathing I intend that to be. <laughs> He's awful, but, like I say, minor. The bigger crime is the running time. There is no reason for this film to be 2 hours 32 minutes. Oof. It's mm, exactly oof. Mm. Especially when it continues for a good 10 or 15 minutes after what was a really clear and poignant endpoint. Grumble, grumble, etc. <laughs> James Mangold's direction is far too polished to be called workmanlike, but it's certainly not particularly special in this instance. It is nicely shot, but I can't but think that the focus is wrong when lush California afternoons stick in my mind more than a car doing 200 plus miles per hour down Mulsan Strait. It is also, and this will shock you, not very accurate in details or timeline. <laughs> Facts here being another casualty in Mangle's attempt to change the script so that it attracted good actors. It did, and it's just as well as it's lacking in other areas, and as I've mentioned, doesn't seem to have quite the right focus. But it's a well-made film, solidly entertaining and with a couple of very appealing central performances. Paint by numbers perhaps, but at least the result is a pretty enough picture. However, if you're of a mind with Garth Marenghi, then you will think the writers Jez and John Henry Butterworth and to Jason Keller, along with the director, are cowards. Though to be fair, there's not a lot of sub about the struggle with the movie studio executive subtext. <laughs> Yeah, um, this one passed me by. Cast aside, I wasn't all that interested in it. And sounds like I can probably wait for that one to appear on the streaming service of my choice to catch up with. It, it's fine. It's a solid film. It's it's entertaining, undeniably entertaining. It's just that it's... It really, if it didn't have two such likeable people in the, mm. the uh, lead, it would just... It would be very ordinary. Yeah. It doesn't have quite like the excitement or the character or anything of, as I say, rush. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't, it feels to me that they've like, they've taken too much of the actual mechanics and motivation part away of it to try and make it appeal to a broader audience. But it, it just leaves it feeling very generic because of that. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. that sets it apart from a thousand other films you've seen. I'm going to watch this next Christmas. <laughs> After I've had my Christmas dinner, instead of the Queen's speech, I'm going to put this on when I am too stuffed to move and I just want to soak in something that's got zero calories. Um, There you go. Although I do have a bit of a soft spot for James Mangold because, again, I listened to an interview with him recently where he got absolutely laid into cinema chains for butting heads with people like Netflix and and focusing their attention on overcharging people for gimmicks um, Mm. and trying to charge punters an exorbitant fee for things like laser projection, etc. When he's saying, look, if... If I were a cinema, if I were cinema chains and I was struggling, I'd be doing everything I could to get punters in the door. I'd be making that very best viewing experience the minimum yes. for for people's fourteen quid or whatever it is. Um, I wouldn't be trying to charge them extra for it. I would be putting my best foot forward just as a policy, as standard. And um, it was it was very erudite on the subject and also very angry. And I really appreciated it. And after Logan, um, I've got a. Yeah, I've I've kind of got more of an interest in his work than perhaps I did previously. So I will I will get round to watching this, but again it's not a super priority and I don't I'm not the biggest fan of Matt Damon in the world. But I think he's passable. Um but yeah. I have no opinion because I ain't seen it. I guess that will take us straight on to our last film of the evening with the Irishman. 
Craig, that's you doing that one, isn't it? No, it was Scorsese, but I'm happy to talk about it. Oh, got to get credit for something, yeah. <laughs> um, after many years in conceptual gestation and production limbo, we are finally privy to Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, his oft-mooted adaptation of I Heard You Paint Houses, a biography of mafia hitman Frank Sheeran and his alleged involvement in the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Starring Robert De Niro as Sheeran, Al Pacino as Hoffa, an unretired Joe Pesky as mob boss Russ Buffalino, and clocking in at three and a half hours... Take, take that, Le Mans 66. <laughs> the Irishman might be Scorsese's most ambitious film to date, though you might not think it to look at its surface. By now, you, like me, may be utterly bored by the attention and debate so far expended upon the movie's great visual trick, which is a de-aging process that allows its leads to play their characters across something like five or six decades. In short, yes, it is distracting up until about halfway through the film, after which it really is not. The much more interesting conversation is to be had around how the movie chronicles the demise of withered old men whose power and glory fades into the shadows of old age and death, along with the secrets they may or may not have kept and the lives they most certainly saw fit to take. To be clear, this is not Scorsese's typical gangster movie, and if anyone who lambasted Casino as a remake of Goodfellas had the same concerns here, they will surely be in no doubt now. Where the director's previous movies have at times sailed very close to the wind and their glorification of the men at their centres, the Irishman most certainly cannot be accused of similar. This is a film that is happy to take its time in very slowly and methodically ensuring that you are in no doubt as to whether there is anything heroic or enviable about the actions of Sheeran or Buffalino, and if the account of Hoffa's demise is anything close to the truth, Frank Sheeran may actually be one of the least sympathetic men in history. <laughs> <laughs> De Niro is fantastic in a wonderfully measured performance, though I fear the CG makeup or make down does somewhat dull the work he does with his eyes. And this is a film with a lot of storytelling that takes place purely in people's eyes. Pacino was probably born to play Hoffa, though at this point in his career we've seen so many variations of this performance from him that it perhaps feels less fresh and energetic than might have been hoped. He's still brilliant though, because he's Pacino, and Pacino probably can't live minute to minute without being brilliant. It's pesky though. I keep saying pesky, pesky though. Who has been earning the most plaudits for his portrayal of Buffalino, and I tend to agree with the reputation as the nice guy among mafia bosses, if there can be such a thing. <laughs> this performance isn't Tommy, nor is it Nicky, and rather something completely new and engaging from the actor, which makes me really glad Scorsese talked him into one last job. While critics have pretty much anointed The Irishman as Scorsese's greatest, most mature work to date, and I probably need a couple more viewings myself before I feel comfortable echoing that, there has been criticism from other quarters, mainly in the film's lack of involvement from its female cast, which is A, completely disingenuous, and B, entirely missing the point in what the inclusion of those roles is saying about Frank and his philosophy, or lack thereof. There's an incredibly telling moment later in the film where a frail and fading Sheeran attempts to assuage the anguish of one of his daughters in telling her that his actions have always been about protecting his family. The response, a curt from what, perfectly frames the preceding three hours of narrative and amorality into two syllables flat. I really, really like The Irishman, and even if I wasn't able to view it optimally, I did, over two nights, find a pretty natural point of intermission, and I don't feel it lessened my experience at all. Remember, kids, if anyone wants to tell you how you ought to consume your art, you can roundly tell them to F off. This is contemplative, meditative cinema of an incredibly high degree, and as a swan song to the combined talents of an iconic trio of actors, it's a wonderful gift. I dare say it's not for everyone, but then neither is anything else. Discuss. I uh, really enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, Did you watch it in accordance with Scorsese's wishes, which I believe I interpreted correctly was at three times speed on an Apple Watch? I think think that's right. I think he said you had to watch it on a mobile phone with a 40 foot diagonal screen. (laughs) (laughs) 
just in case also um, people think that I don't like long films. I don't like unnecessarily long films. Um, I never thought I've never thought of you as having a problem with long films. Uh, we do complain about it a lot, but that's because a lot of films are too are, long unnecessarily. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, uh, well, I just assume that if a film's of the <laughs> is of the relevant length, you don't have a problem with it. Yes, I, I don't. And one person who regularly makes very long films I will happily watch again and again is Martin Scorsese. I watched this in one sitting and it flew along and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I didn't think it was spectacular, though. I, I still think... Goodfellas is a number of degrees above this, but I've only seen this once. I've seen Goodfellas a dozen times, so yeah. you know, let, let's see how that pans out. It's just really great the the CGI de aging. I'd read various people complain about it, and I was expecting a Grand Moff Tarkin moment from yeah. um, <laughs> Star Wars. Uh, and it's not that. At it's all. not not even close. Um, it didn't even take me, what did you say, Craig, about an hour and a half into the stop noticing? Uh, about halfway through, yeah. It was actually less than that for me. It was yeah. more because it wasn't that, that it was distracted, it was more that it was inconsistent. Most of the time, it's actually pretty yeah. good, apart yeah. from some weird things going on with lights and Bobby De Niro's eyes. Um, that's. I'm glad you mentioned that because when I was talking about the acting that happens with eyes, I was really distracting because I almost felt like too much attention. It was as if they were over enhancing the eyes. Yeah. Like there was too much catch light. There was, there was too much kind of moisture in the eye in in an attempt to sort of sell you the, to sell you the trick. Yeah. It didn't look like his eyes. It looked like, yeah, they'd they'd fiddled with his eyes and it was really too (laughs) big. But yeah. So for the most part, it actually looks pretty good. Perhaps the only really dodgy thing was, the when they increased their age slightly a few scenes, in which case it looked yeah. more like just bad makeup, and actually that mm. was the worst part. Yeah. But it was it's slightly inconsistent. There's a few scenes where it looked more like they were wearing, like they'd painted their own face on their face or wearing some kind of wax <laughs> mask yeah. or something. But those are few and far between, actually. So that, that kind of, apart from the eye thing, passed me by quite quickly. I think it's Joe Pesci that's quite rightly, as you say, Craig, is getting all the plaudits. I could have watched. Like a film that was just him, yeah, in yeah, his yeah, quality. Yeah. Um, because I thought it was fantastic, and I'd liked Joe Pesci a lot. He's uh, particularly with his work with Scorsese in the past, but you know that he's just been in a lot of crap as well, and he like and he's not very good in it. It's like yeah, this hmm. maybe just, he needs the right director because he yeah. clearly has the chops. And yeah, it's very rare, very rare you've seen Pesci with like a volume dial that could be adjusted. Yeah. And, uh, this, this is one of the few times of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah, I just thought he was great. It's nice to see Al Pacino, you know, doing something really good again, not being, talking about Dunkachino or <laughs> uh, being in Righteous Kill or 88 Minutes or anything, you know. He's, he's done some right stinkers as well. Yeah, it's, it's a master filmmaker with actors who are masters of their craft. Very entertaining. I think the the only problem is that I had with this, I think, is is the character because he he's so amoral, and as you say, Craig, he's one of like the the least likable characters you can possibly imagine, one of the worst people ever. Yeah, but for instance, when you see like Goodfellas, you've got Henry Hill, and his character is that like, you can get on board with this character because you understand from the young boy the desire that yeah. gets in a bit too deep. You can understand his reveling in the lifestyle. Yeah, um, but for Sheeran, there isn't even that lifestyle. No, it's like. Um, like the deed he does towards the end, um, you know, if it's anything close to the truth, as you say, it's like he didn't even question it. 
He didn't put one word of argument. He just did it. No, I, there was there, there was a great deal beforehand, and it was the point at which I think there, there was a real turning point in the movie, and um, I really found the last hour of it, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but I found the last hour of this film like really oddly moving. I, th- I think it might just be looking at these older men and and thinking about what's in store and thinking think thinking about um people we uh people we know ourselves and that thing of these men and the, the power that they've they've held and to see them actually so frail and but at the at the point it, it really started at the point at which it became obvious what De Niro was going to have to do in relation to or sorry Sheeran was going to have to do in relation to Hoffa and you could see Prior to it, Drew, you could see you could see the reluctance and the hesitation. Though, like you said, he didn't really he didn't really express any opposition. I mean, he tried to. I think he tried to willfully obfuscate the conversation at best. Um, and you could see him searching for an answer other than the obvious. But he didn't put up any resistance, and he and he carried out his order anyway. And what what surprised me, and I think which is the most telling thing about the character and the point in which you realise that the character there's no redemption for uh, there was no redemption to be had for Shank for Shank <laughs> Shank as I know him <laughs> as I used to call him um, Frank Sheeran is that um, he's offered an opportunity to express regret for for his actions in relation to Jimmy Hoffa at a certain point with another character, and he makes it quite clear to them that he doesn't have any, <laughs> no. and it's, it's like, and it's not the answer that I was expecting. And you think, oh my god, right? Yeah, okay, this guy to... is utterly irredeemable. Yeah, mm. I'm pleased there wasn't no, because it would have been so false and so hollow. Um, yeah, but it's just yeah, it's not how these stories typically go. You know, yeah. I, th- I think it's the point at which you realise that this is just a, just for once something brutally honest and frank, and I kind of appreciated that honesty. It's not necessarily what you want in your heart, but it, but it is what you understand in your head. Um, and it was just yeah, it was just it felt like it felt like it felt like something new to see that. But it, yeah, it was like just oddly emotional the last hour of this film and the, the that scene where where the act is carried out and and handled. I found really disconcerting and and um, haunting in its matter of factness. And in fact, it's not it's not a particularly violent movie in relation to some of the other stuff that Scorsese has done. But it's almost more affecting because everything is handled in such a matter of fact way. Um, but that one scene in particular, where where we see what happens with Hoffa, I, I was really unsettled by it, and I really expected. I was kind of feeling sorry for Frank in the moment because I felt like you could see the struggle he was having internally even if he wasn't externalising it and then to have that answer which was absolutely not what you expected like kind of knocked me sideways and it's not a film with moments that you expect to knock you sideways because it's hugely understated there's none of the flash there's none of the glamour there's none of the there's none of even the technical showboating that you you expect at certain points um from Scorsese there's none of the freeze frames there's none of the crash zoom there's none of the like super long single takes there's yeah. none of that stuff it's ju- it's just really it's just really matter of fact in, in handling all that stuff and it, it had a really weird effect a really weird effect on me in the last hour I think it might be one sort of bit of somewhat technical showboating, which I assume is a direct callback to the 
the, the tra- long tracking shot in Goodfellas because it's right at the start when it's tracking them through tracking through the nursing home and getting to the uh, rather by that point already quite defeated looking Frank and it yeah. encapsulates quite well how it's the almost the exact inverse of Goodfellas uh, yeah. how it's how it's absolutely not going to be about any kind of glamour it's about the, the almost more matter of fact business like nature of it which is it, I think you said it doesn't it doesn't make for a film that's going to blow you away the way that Goodfellas does it's not going to have the, the kind of razzle dazzle elements mm-hmm. of it but it's not going to seduce you yeah, it's probably stronger for not having it, um, and it's a, yeah, it, it is clearly a very, very good film. It may be his best. It's going to be hard to say without um, giving it a bit more fullness of time. But yes, it's, it's at least multiple it, viewings. I think too. absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's, you, you can see why people are calling it his most mature and his, his perhaps most reflective work. It, it does, um, particularly given the kind of career he's had and the kind of films he's made. Uh, this feels like a something of a, a better, better meditation on the actual characters of these people. Um, and their morality of it and where it's got them in the end and it's passing more of a judgement on that than it did in the likes of Goodfellas or Casino and uh, it's it's certainly a much more interesting film for that in, in that regard yeah. yeah I mean it's also I mean, there are obvious comparisons to Goodfellas and so in the early stages I thought it felt very like it the, mm. the same way the music crosses between shots the the machine makers editing and stuff uh, but it's actually telling a very different story, and so you can't really compare them because Goodfellas is about, as we mentioned, like the glamour, and you're, like, you're seeing why this person would be attracted to it, and then they end up having yeah. to do these things because they're in that life. Whereas this person is a terrible, <laughs> terrible person who got yeah. brought into this life because he happened to have particular skills <laughs> that was useful, rather than he yeah. s- s- uh, wasn't seeking it out. And so it's actually a very different. Look, similar world, similar time. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. it's actually a very different character study. Well, even, even the setups for it, you know, Henry Hill is as long as as long as I can remember of wanting to be a gangster, and um, Frank is like, well, one time a gangster helped me fix my car. And <laughs> yeah. I thought I'd start being a gangster at that point. <laughs> yeah, and I've got quite used to I'd got quite I'd got quite used to dispassionately offing enemy enemy soldiers <laughs> who were prisoners of war during the war without questioning my orders for it, and so I thought I would do the same for him. Yes, um, it is much more mature than something like Goodfellas, and though I know I, it's going to it's going to come down to one of those things, but I think I can imagine in the long term appreciating that The Irishman is probably the better film technically, but Goodfellas might be the more enjoyable film. Yeah, mm-hmm. but Goodfellas does openly try to seduce you as a as a viewer into that into that lifestyle to try and make you complicit in it, which is where the sort of where the you know the sort of gut punch or as close to a gut punch ending um, as you get in, in Goodfellas comes from. Um, I kind of I suppose Goodfellas makes you feel a, a bit dirty for sort of um, for for in, indulging in that lifestyle and sort of and and feeling that way about the glamorisation of it to begin with. There's none of that here whatsoever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. This film makes it clear from the start. Like, and I'd forgotten about that. I'd forgotten about that shot at the start, Scott. But it is. It's kind of like you remember the shot from the other film where all this stuff was portrayed quite. <laughs> yes. This yeah, is a different film. Yeah. Portrayed alluringly. Well, look here. I'm here. I'm using that same technical prowess to show you an old man whose family don't want anything to do with him anymore and who has nothing left in the world because mm-hmm. he. He chose to throw it all away for no reason whatsoever. But it seems fine with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, has bizarrely made his peace with it. Which I guess makes you think that he never actually cared much about the other stuff anyway. Um, mm. But just to talk about whether this is better than Goodfellas, whether he's best or not, 
can we not have that conversation? Because I don't yeah. feel like I need to. It's not necessary. One. I have yeah. time to watch more than one, and I love a lot mm. of Scorsese's work, so yeah. I'll yeah. happily watch them both again. So. I was really worried this this was basically going to come across as a tech demo, and so the fact that not only was it not that, but um, essentially, no, but that that became irrelevant at a certain point in the film, that it turned out to be quite quite so good as it is at this point in Scorsese's career for him to pull something like this out of the bag and for everyone involved to not be dialing in their righteous kill performances yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and Pacino like point three of a Scarface yeah this along with like Blade Runner 2049 this I've been waiting for so long and I was counting the days till this came on Netflix and I was like super pissed that I didn't have the opportunity I, was, I knew I wasn't going to get the opportunity to see it in a cinema and I was literally counting down and then I couldn't watch it the first two days that it was on Netflix and then I had to watch it over two nights and I really don't care because I enjoyed my time with it immensely and I'm, I'm looking forward to repeat viewings and a better assessment of it but um, even even the stuff that I think didn't work about the de-aging and other people have discussed it at enough length and I've got nothing new to say about it you haven't heard on a hundred other podcasts anyway about the, the, the frailty of their posture and the physical movement and like you could, they can de-age what's there now, but they can't recreate the face that was there then. Um, you know, so a de-aged Robert De Niro now, you know, looks nothing like Robert De Niro of Taxi Driver, for example. It's it's kind of irrelevant. It's just a it's just a just a really really fantastic contemplative piece of art, and um, it's not the most uplifting subject ever. But assuming that you you that's not a barrier to you, I'm really really can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, and he says he's doing um, what you're really meant to do with tools like that. He's using those tools to help him tell the story. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it doesn't have to do with. Um, Coppola had to do with the Godfather and have a different actor playing the younger person. Yeah. You have a consistency of portrayal, yeah. consistency of character. Um, beyond just the physical thing, you actually have the consistency of the actor doing it. So he's using it as a tool to help him yeah. tell the story better. The only the only discussion I've had with myself was that at first I came away from it and the first thought I had was that was really great. I kind of was a bit distracted by the technical aspects earlier on, but I soon sort of forgot about it, which was, I think, as a an indicator of the fact that, you know, like you say, Drew, it's been used for storytelling purposes, and it's a it's a really engaging story. So you stop caring about it, even if it's even if there are sort of distractions here and there. The only conversation I've had with myself was I came away from it and I thought, I thought to myself, I would really prefer if it had been made thirty years ago, though, where really talented makeup artists could have made them up 30 years down and also 30 years up. Maybe not 30, it wouldn't have been 30 years down then, but like, you know, yeah. could have could have made them down 20 years at the time and like 30 years up or whatever, or, or whatever necessary. But I also think to myself that these are performances, as, as skilled as De Niro and Pacino and Pesci are, I feel like these are performances that can probably only be given by people of a certain age with that kind of experience if that makes sense so I know that other people have made that point about you know uh, could you not have used other actors or could you not have you know made up and made down people you know there have been plenty of examples where that has worked in other films and I might I might argue one way or the other with that to be honest depending on the film but I am actually kind of of the opinion that probably this could only be made effectively now and with that kind of approach so yeah sold <laughs> Sold. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, for the most part, I would tend to agree with you, Craig, about like acting as one of those things you tend to get better at with age. Yeah. 
hmm. uh, whether you're bringing a life experience or not. But it's not always the case, and I think perhaps, well, maybe until this film actually, De Niro might be one of those people I thought wasn't one of those ones. He just he burned so brightly hmm. um, between sort of like mid seventies to mid nineties, then just seemed to I don't know stop caring. <laughs> And the only time, the only time he would, you ever got glimpses of, like the actor that was that you knew could be there was perhaps unexpectedly. Um, maybe this sounds a silly example, but I was really entertained by Robert De Niro on Stardust when he was mm. playing the gay yeah. pirate, and I was like, "Oh wait, that guy can act!" Because the last thing I saw him was like hide and seek or Godsend or something like that. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> and so yeah, De Niro had gone in for some terrible stuff, and then. I'm thinking, yeah, and Pacino's in that. Was it Jack and Jill who did that Dunkachino thing? I think, yeah, what's mm. going on? Oh, no, no. They just needed to be have the right project and the right director, and it's fantastic. Um, so, actually, both Pacino and De Niro, I would argue, could possibly have done this 30 years ago, as you suggest. Um, but I don't think it would necessarily have been better. Maybe mm. not worse, but I don't think it could have been better. The other great thing about this film, Drew, is that I've been completely unable since watching it to think about Joe Pesky's character without thinking, also thinking to myself, Mr. Buffalino, Mr. Ross Buffalino. <laughs> 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 I was hoping you'd appreciate that. <laughs> oh, dear. There you go. Yeah, so that will wrap us up for today then. Um, thank you very much for your attention. If you'd like to get in touch with us on this or any other topics, then please give us a, a hit up on the Twitters. We're there at Fuds on Film or Facebook at facebook.com slash Fuds on Film or through the email at podcast at Fuds on Film.com. So we'll see you in the next podcast very soon. But until that's such a time, we'll say bid you adieu. Fare thee well. It is what it is. It is what it is.